Well, it's good to be here. Um, I was I was getting a little worried actually because on the way here I it took a little bit longer than I expected, and uh, and at Beechworth Bakery it took a little bit longer to get my coffee as well. So <laughs> priorities, <laughs> and so I, I didn't make it here, and I'm thankful for that. Um, I've known Daniel for a few years now. We we met. Uh, uh, through an instruction course, uh, Overseas Instructions and Counseling, um, which is a program that we had here for a few years teaching biblical counseling. And, and Daniel and I met there, and, and we actually, I just ap- actually happened to have a conversation with Wayne Vanderweer, the director of that, our good friend who wanted just to share, he just wanted me to say hello to you and to everybody here and just share his love for, for, for your church and, and for Daniel's and uh, Jessica, Jessica especially. Um, like Daniel said, I'm um, I'm in a strange place. <laughs> uh, last time I was here, I, I shared with you guys that we were we were looking to uh, we, we had transitioned out of our previous church, and we my family of my family of seven. We're we have five kids, seven of us. We are planning now to move to Chicago for a few months of training. Uh, we're joining a group over there um, in the Chicago area that has a very expansive uh, church planting program that we're going to go through as part of the training and internship and then come back here in Melbourne next year to plant a church. So that is what the Lord has for us in the uh, coming days. And uh, so we're, we're right now actually in the midst of preparing and getting ready to move my gigantic family to uh, the other side of the world. And uh, my son, who's uh, four years old, his lifelong ambition has been to go on an airplane. So we told him, we're going to go on an airplane. He's like, oh, this is going to be so exciting. We're going to be on there for 20 hours. <laughs> He's oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So he'll like it for about an hour, and then, and then <laughs> it's going to be something else. So that's what the Lord has in store for us. We're really excited, and I'm thankful just to come here and, and share the word with you. Um, before we start, let, me just, let us just uh, bow our heads one more time and, and just commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, so grateful and so thankful, Lord, for the opportunity that you give us, Lord, to not only have life in your Son, but, Lord, share that life with others. Share that in fellowship. Share that in the ministry of the Word. In this time now, Lord, that we look to your Word, Lord, I pray that all of us would be transformed and fixed upon you. Lord, I pray that you use me, this, this poor vessel, Lord, um, Lord, for your purposes, and, Lord, that the word that is preached now is your, it comes from you. Lord, we just pray that we would be transformed just a little bit more like your son through the message that we hear now and throughout the day. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning for my sections, um, we're going to talk about two things in relation to abiding in Christ. Your relationship with God. First, what abiding in Christ does not look like. That's what I'm going to talk about now. And then when I talk in a little bit, a little bit later, we're going to look at what abiding in Christ does look like when fighting sin. So what does abiding in Christ not look like and when fighting sin, and what does it look like? It's basically the two questions we're going to be answering. And I want to talk, tell you first about John. John is an individual who came to a conference like this one, and uh, he was convicted about the lack of... of spiritual maturity in his own life. And he was resolved to change and to take his faith much more seriously. And he went home, and he loves the Lord, and he left that conference with a genuine desire to grow, like many of us have. 
And at the conference, he was told that in order to grow, he would need to read the Bible every day. So he did. Every day, he woke up early in the morning so that he could have a devotion. He would then got into the habit of downloading a sermon from a popular preacher around the world, and he would listen to a sermon every day on top of what he was studying. And once he heard a sermon talk about the need for joining, having accountability and joining a small group, so that young man decided to join a small group. He heard then about the importance of evangelism and started going out and evangelizing regularly with his church group. The evangelism team... And, and then he heard an elder in his church describing the importance of corporate prayer. And then in time, he, he joined the prayer meeting on Wednesdays and before church. And John heard his pastor then talk about, talking about the need to disciple all, to be a discipler. If you're a Christian, you need to be discipling others. And he took it upon himself to then start counseling and discipling other believers. And took a few people from the youth group into his, into his uh, regular weekly schedule to meet with them. And in the church, people looked up to John. People looked up to John, and, and no one had any doubts for his zeal for the Lord. No one had any doubts about John's zeal for the Lord except for John. He was working full-time. He had a family to take care of. And the rest of his time, all of his time, was focused on the church. And John would never acknowledge this, but he feels drained. He's drained because of his lack of joy. All these things are becoming a burden for his life. And he's beginning to even question his salvation. He's afraid to ask anyone for help because he doesn't want to look unspiritual. He doesn't want to disappoint anyone. And let me ask you, did John's elders, did John's pastor, did any of those famous pastors that he heard preaching and talking about the need and the importance of all these things in church life contribute to that current state of misery that John is in? No. See, he may have started off well and with good intentions, but slowly, as time progressed, slowly shifted away from his original motives. Slowly, the devil's schemes worked in his life to alter and twist and change his motives and corrupted the desire he had and turned, turning good teaching that he received, good counsel that he received, into bad practice. How can you discern what a mature Christian looks like? John looks like a mature Christian. But he's struggling. He's even struggling to the point of doubting his own salvation. If you wanted to be mentored by someone, you would look to someone like John and say, John, teach me how to be like you. And probably John would. And if you've been in Christ, if you've been in church for a while, am I the only one that has been fooled by someone like John? Because I have. I've met many people like John. Seemed to have their walk all together. But found out later that they really had a facade of Christian maturity. A facade of spiritual living. John slowly and daily, without even realizing, transferred his 
walk with the Lord into a treadmill form of Christianity, a checklist form of Christianity. He denied the relationship with God for the practice, the checklist of what it is to be a Christian. And that is what Paul is addressing to the Colossians in the book of Colossians. This checklist form of Christianity, this type of Christianity that gets mixed up with things of the world, that looks smart, that looks wise, but isn't real. It doesn't have genuine spiritual depth. They exchanging the truth for a lie, exchanging the, the facade of Christian maturity for the relationship of Jesus Christ. Paul never visited Colossae, but he knew a lot about them. He knew a lot about them from people that had come from there. He had a ministry partnership with a man named Epaphras, who was from Colossae. And so he knew a lot about this, this body of believers, this group of believers. And you have to know something about Colossae before we, we look at our text. Colossae was the outskirts of the Roman Empire. It had all the benefits and business interactions of the Roman Empire, but it also had all the interactions of the East, the philosophies. and So they had the best of both worlds. It was a place for, of learning. They had all the cultural and, and expertise of the Roman Empire. They also had all the things that were going on out in the rest of the world. And for that reason, they had... Also, a lot of religious ideas in their, in their community. There were a lot of Jews there who had landed and, uh, and created a community. So they understood a lot about the Old Testament. They understood a lot about everything. They were smart. And because of all these influences in differing relationships and the strong Jewish presence, a hybrid form of Christianity had set into the church had developed within the church that, mis- that mixed up some, some mysticism, some asceticism, which, is, which means strict observance of the law from the Jewish group, had crept into what it was to be part of this Christian community. And the text of our study this morning is at a pivotal point in the book of Colossae, or the book of Colossians, um, which transitions from Paul's defense against these teachings to his exhortation for us to trust in Christ and Christ alone. To trust in the power of a genuine faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at three tests, three warnings, three tests to see if you are being a Christian without Christ. If you're trying to be a Christian without Christ, how can you do that? Three Warnings that you're trusting in a formula for Christianity rather than a relationship with Christ himself. Warnings against this treadmill Christianity, this this checklist Christianity, to see how you're measuring your own spiritual maturity by your motives rather than by your works. So the first warning that we have in our text, actually let me read the text first. We're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And let me read that with you. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the first warning, verses 20 and 22, is that having a presentation mindset blinds you to your spiritual progress. Having this, this desire to have a checklist form of Christianity blinds you to your true spiritual progress. See, checklist Christianity has no value. The problem with our friend John is that he has this performance mindset, this Christian performance mindset. It's a form of legalism. Checklist Christianity. And when I say legalism, there's, there's different types of legalism, just to be clear. There's true, absolute legalism, which means that you think if you do a work, you will be saved. And that's just, that's just a heresy. If you believe that, you cannot be saved. Because only trusting and believing in Christ Jesus and the work that he did on the cross will save you. So that's true, pure legalism. That's not what he's talking about here. There's also legalism that creeps into our Christian life. And I think we all will struggle with this at some level. We're trying to, trying to trust in what we do to gain favor to God. Trying to trust in our own flesh, our own strength to gain favor to God. Our friend John was trusting in what he does rather than in Jesus for the growth of his spiritual life. He was trusting in what he was doing rather than in his relationship to gain growth, to gain progress in Christ. See, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness or acceptance from God through obedience. There's no reason in Christ to have that performance mindset. We follow Christ because we love Christ, not because we're trying to earn his favor. He has already granted us all the favor. Earlier in this chapter, in Colossians 2.12, Paul gives an illustration. He illustrates something to describe the state, the present state of all believers. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He is is reminding the Colossians, and he's reminding us of our state, our position in Christ. See, Dead people do not move. You were, before Christ, spiritually dead. When God said, give me glory, you couldn't. You were dead. If I go into a morgue and I say, rise, walk, 
Nothing will happen because a dead person doesn't respond to the living person. We were dead, but now in Christ, a supernatural event occurred. Jesus changed us into new creatures. We went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And so now when God says, give me glory, we have in Christ the ability to give him glory. We have the ability to now respond, not through our own power, but through his. And Paul is reminding them, Colossians, you were dead, but now you are alive in Christ. Dead people don't move. You're moving because you're alive. According to Colossians 2.12, who is and who is not alive and dead, responsible for our salvation? Excuse me. God is responsible for our salvation and man is not. And now here's the question. Because we all, especially if you're in a conservative, reformed church, you'll say, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Why are Christians so likely to affirm the justification that a glorified God gives us, but not the sanctification that he enables us to do, to grow in, to change him? In other words, when you were spiritually dead, it took a, a supernatural work in, from God to change you, to transform you, to give you a new heart, to make you alive in Christ Jesus. Now that you are alive in Christ Jesus, the same power is at work and must be relied upon for you to change, to be sanctified, to grow. Why is it that we so readily go, yes, I know, I'm absolutely saved by grace alone. And then when it comes to our own growth in Christ, our own sanctification, we rely completely on our own flesh to grow. Rely on our own strength. Trying to hold, I won't do it, I won't do it. And not realizing it's God who changes and transforms. And it's us leaning and drawing from his strength, his power, and his word. That changes us. Relying on him, not our own strength. Why do we do that? Because it's easier. Sanctification comes out in works. The transformation of the heart changes how we live. And you know what? I can't quantify what's in my heart through a checklist, but I can quantify how many times I read my Bible and how often I do good works through a checklist. And it's easy to do that. It's easier to do that and quantify that and to look like, hey, I'm a good person because look at my long list of good deeds. Rather than saying, no, I'm a good person because God changed me. I think it's quite interesting that when Paul is talking to the Galatians about the transformation of the heart and the life of a believer, and he says, and he points to the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit are visiting the poor, going to the widows, changing the light bulbs in church, doing good works. He doesn't say that. He says the fruit of the Spirit is the heart attitude that leads you to that. Love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, 
How do you quantify that? Have you loved enough? Have you been kind enough? Have you been gracious? Have you fulfilled the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I don't know how to quantify that. Because it's a change of heart. It's a transforming work. And the reality is, I don't know how to put that on a checklist. Have I loved enough? No. Have I been patient enough? Yes, 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 I have. Get, get that down. No. Our reliance here, our, our transformation here, comes from God. And the work, the, the, the things that we do, the things that quantify it, that point to the transforming heart, are good. Reli- you know, studying the Bible, doing good works. Those are good things. Those are evidences of the transforming work, the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out. But if you're relying on the manifestations, the checklists, then you can easily, like our friend John, transfer the checklist to be what you're relying on rather than the relationship of Jesus Christ. The relationship, the transforming work, the changing heart that comes from walking closely with God. And interestingly enough, when we do that, what happens when you start relying on the works and the manifestations, the perceived manifestations of the works, the Spirit's work in your heart, if you just do this, without this, you lose your joy. You become tired. You lose your focus on why you're doing what you're doing. And you get stuck on this treadmill of Christianity where you can't stop because you don't want people to think that you're not as spiritual as you used to be. And your whole focus is gone. And this transference happens so slowly and so subtly. Because remember our friend John went to a good conference like you did today and was moved and wanted to give God glory and his intentions were right. But slowly and over time, he shifted. In verse 20, Paul challenges the Colossians, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why? As if you are living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees? What is the challenge here? If you died to Christ, then why do you act like you live, like you did not? In other words, if you are in Christ and abiding in Christ, why are you acting like you're not? Why are you relying on the things of this world rather than on Christ and Christ alone? Why are you trying to live in Christ on your own merits, is what he's saying here. Again, a dead person doesn't move. Why are you pretending to be dead, relying on the flesh? It makes no sense. You need to rely on the spirit. Paul uses the term elemental principles of the world and their decrees to describe what the Colossians were submitting to. What's, what does he mean? Well, Look earlier in the chapter, he explains it in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. It's tradition. It's worldly philosophy. It's thinking. It's, it's the way this world works. Not the things of the world, not the things of Christ, but the things of this world. The common sense of this world what is Paul urging the Colossians to do to not be? 
taken through. Uh, sorry, what, what is Paul urging Coloss- the Colossians to not be taken captive through? No one. Don't get suckered in to any of these lies. These lies that come from who? The world. What does Paul use of the word? When Paul says deceit, he's implying that these teachings of the world are tricking you. There's trickery there. They're appealing. The world promises. It appeals. It promises so much, but it delivers nothing. And Paul contrasted the source of human tradition with what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, the gospel, that is our source of power and nothing else. See, in verses 21 and 22, Paul starts mocking what they're hearing. He's mocking their human tradition. He's mocking their philosophy, their worldly thinking. He's mocking those teachings that they're believing according to human standards and holiness. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch all things that we do, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They're saying, you know, if you touch this type of meat, if you touch this thing, you will be unclean. If you, if you're, if you're, there's so many things, so many things from that day and age that they thought if they did certain things, they would be holy. What are some contemporary examples, though? We could talk about, you know, not eating a ham sandwich and all the things that, that they would have said, these things make you unholy. But what are contemporary examples of standards of Christian holiness that are actually not found in the Bible? I'm not going to go into any of the, 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 the details, but waking up early to pray. I had a brother who once told me, if you don't wake up at 4.30 in the morning, you are never going to be a mature believer. I'm usually going to bed around <laughs> late at night. I, I don't wake up at 4.30. Um, that, that's, I mean, there's, there's some wisdom to that, waking up early and, and having, spending time with the Lord. But that rule, I can't find that in the Bible. Wearing certain clothes to church or certain clothes throughout the day is another example of something that may not be in the Bible. There's some wisdom principles there. What kind of school you go, your kids go to, or whether they're homeschooled or not. What kind of music you listen to. What kind of music you hear. What kind of music you, you hear at church. There's so many things that we fill our Christian worldview with as holiness rather than a means to holiness. What about, now, I preached this sermon once. Actually, I had somebody stand up and say, you're wrong! So don't do that. <laughs> What about reading your Bible every day? Do you know that it never says, read the Bible every day? The Bible never says, read the Bible every day. And yet, so many Christians think, well, I have to do my my 30 minutes each day or I'm in sin. The Bible says, the Lord says, he wants us to meditate on his word all the time. And a means... To that would be a, a, a wise thing to do, would be ha- to have a regular study of the word. 
But I remember counseling this one brother who had a two-hour Bible study every single day in the original languages. And I was counseling him because he was dealing with some of the most fleshly and worldly things in, in the, that you can imagine. He was a Bible college student, and he actually left Bible college because he wasn't fit to be there. But the man knew the word. The young man knew his word. He studied diligently every day, and he looked down on everybody because no one else would study it as much as him. But there's a much bigger difference from his mark of holiness was having a two-hour devotional each morning. But that wasn't making him holy. In fact, he was forfeiting the means of holiness by not meditating on the word and letting that word soak in and transform him. See, it's very easy to say, well, I check, I did that. I'm a good, solid Christian. I put two hours in this morning. How much did you put in? Well, that's, that's not the measure of holiness. The measure of holiness is walking closely with your God. Understanding his word so that you can be transformed by his word, so that you can live out his word for his glory. We don't, we have so many things that we do, which are good things, wise things, that we do in Christian life that are a means for our holiness. But it's so subtle that we can easily not, easily exchange that good thing, whatever it is in your life, that good thing to be the standard of holiness. To be a work that we say, I do this, therefore I am holy. And the reality is, no, you might do that. There's wisdom there. There's, a, there's opportunity for growth in that thing, whatever it is, that wisdom principle you're following. But unless it changes you and it, makes you draw, it draws you closer to the Lord, closer in your relationship with Christ to make you holy, then it is just a work and it has no merit Why are people in the church inclined to look to such standards? Because it's easy. It's easy to have a checklist and say, I did this, I did this, I did this. I am spiritual. I am mature. I am in this ministry. I am in this ministry. I am in this ministry. Therefore, I am mature. I am an elder. I am a pastor. I am a deacon. Whatever. Those are not marks of maturity per se, Those are not means to measure your holiness. It is your walk. It is your ability to abide in Christ. Walk closely with your Savior, your Lord. That is your mark of holiness. It's easy and less threatening to have a checklist. It's hard, in fact, almost impossible to quantify a relationship how close are you to your spouse? Can you be closer? Yes. 50 years married, can you be closer? Yes. That's the mark of a relationship. Can you grow in Christ? Yes. Have you grown? Yes. Can you grow more? Oh, yeah. Can you be more loving, more joyful, more patient, more full of peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Have you arrived 
on any of those things? No. Will you in your lifetime? Probably not. We'll be working on those things. We can't quantify those things. God's standards focus on our character. Our character, the heart, the relationship. Human standards focus on what we do. On what we can see. Focusing on man-made spiritual measures is a smokescreen. It's a smokescreen tactic. That's, that's the second warning here. Actually, sorry. Um, focusing on man-made spiritual measures is a smokescreen. It's a tactic of the enemy. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. See, on the battlefield... What does a smokescreen do? It impairs vision. It confuses you. It makes you susceptible and more vulnerable to the enemy's attack. What this suggests about why the enemy deceives Christians into adopting these spiritual smokescreens, it's, it's, it's setting us up for the sucker punch. It's getting us off the mark to weaken us. So that in boxing, you know, if, if, you're, if you're in a boxing, if you ever see a boxing match, you'll see sometimes someone will start waving their arm this way. And that's to get the, their opponent to look away for a second. So that the moment his eyes are on this waving fist, boom, sucker punch. See, what is happening in our life is the enemy is trying to, f- to find diversions, smoke screens. Focus on this, focus on this, focus on this. And then the real issues in life creep in. The joy is sucked away from your life, from your walk with God. Your focus stops being on your Savior, but on the big waves that are coming your way. And you sink. And you think, but I, I'm, I'm, I was walking. I was thinking. I was, I was trying to go that direction. But you got focused on everything else in life. The second warning, the second warning is actually having a presentation mindset that impresses men and yourself and not God. See, Paul is identifying the reality that these, in verses 20 to 22, he's saying, okay, what you're relying on has no value here. What you're relying on here is dangerous. It's of the world. It's fit for the things of this world, not, not the Lord, not the Lord's people. And it really is, the second warning, the second test is, having this mindset, this presentation mindset, it impresses only men. It only impresses the people of this world. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Paul states, he's, he's affirming, he's like, look, some of these things have the appearance of wisdom. For example, in my illustration, the, having a Bible study every day is wise. Please, never, don't ever think I'm, I'm saying, don't, don't have a Bible study every day. <laughs> the last thing I'd ever want to say. But it has an appearance of wisdom. But you can easily twist that. You can 
easily twist that so that you're not being shaped and conformed to what you're studying, not meditating on the word. And using that mark of spirituality as your Christian maturity. I, I do my Bible study every, time, every day. That's what makes me a mature Christian. How can this, these forms of legalism appear to be wise? It's wise to discipline your life. It's wise and called for in the Christian life to have an orderly and disciplined life. To be most, most, um, conduct, to most, conducive, it's most conducive for your goals that you set as a Christian. It is wise and right to have an orderly and disciplined life. Self-control is one of the marks of the fruit of the Spirit. And if you have a goal like running a marathon, it is wise for you to work towards that goal through a routine exercise. And then when you start the marathon, you don't just run full sprint. You'll die. You won't make it. You have to pace yourself. However, in legalism, the discipline in yourself becomes the goal not winning, not getting to the end. The goal becomes the discipline, not holiness. You see, we study our Bible every day. We, we do things, we walk in a wise manner so that we can draw closer to the Lord, so that we can get closer to who, he who saved us, who we love so we can be transformed for his purposes, for his glory. We don't do these exercises just for the sake of exercise. That's legalism. We're just doing it to say, hey, you know, I go to the gym every day. Isn't that great? Well, for what purpose? To be healthy? No, no, I just, I just do it. I just like it. Fine. That's the end of itself. When you exercise your faith in whatever means it is, whatever ministry you're involved in, whatever discipline, good discipline you have, whether it's Bible study, regular prayer, memorizing scripture, whatever it is, make sure that the motivation for these things is for God's glory and God's glory alone. Not to have the appearance of wisdom, not to follow the, 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 the Bible reading plan that your pastor put out for you so that you could say, I did it. Well, that's a good thing, but the purpose that your pastor would have given you such a goal was for you to grow in the Lord, not just to study for the sake of studying. What is the person who has a performance mindset trying to prove? He's trying to prove that he's a Christian, he's mature in the faith, it's real. We don't have to do that. If you're in Christ, the moment you believe, it's real. Your relationship with God is secure in Christ and in Christ alone. In his work, not yours. And it's by grace that you grow in that work, in that love. It's by grace that he changes you. It's by grace that we grow one to another, together in Christ. And if you're... Focus is just to do the work and not to get close, draw closer to the Lord. Ultimately, you're trying to please men or yourself, trying to prove something to yourself. Some of the Colossians would deny themselves certain foods. 
They would observe certain festivals and rituals. Some of them would be very, very sure never to work on the Sabbath. Men would circumcise themselves even after being in Christ. And even more extreme forms of self, of being uh, of severe treatments of the body. Some, even here, some people would, some married people would abstain from intercourse with their, their, with their spouse because of a, because of some because the idea that denial will somehow make them closer to God. And some of these acts are denial some of these acts of denial are things that the world teaches. Roman Catholicism, Islam, they all teach that self-denial for the sake of self-denial will walk will give you some kind of closeness to the Lord. And the reality is if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're already close to the Lord. There's nothing to prove. My children do not have to prove to me that they're my children for me to love them. Why are these ascetic practices? Asceticism means you're denying yourself. Why are these, these practices such a staple for man-made religion around the world? Because ultimately, if that's the reason why you do it, the purpose is to get your own glory. Man gets glory. See what I've done. See what I've earned. See what I've denied myself for the sake of being mature. I'm not saying that there isn't self-denial in Christ. But the purpose and the focus is different. For these Colossians, what he's saying is, your purpose is for yourself. Your purpose here is to prove to others and to prove to yourself that you have made it. But you're not relying on the work of the Spirit. You're relying on the flesh. You're relying on your, the flesh so that you get your own glory. See what I've achieved? And as Christians, we have certain acts of self-denial that are biblical mandates. Take up your cross daily. Why are the Christians' practices of self-denial different from what Paul is describing here in other religions? Because the focus, the focus, the person you're trying to please is the Lord himself for the purpose of his glory, not your own. And are you really, now watch this, are you really denying yourself by not eating poison? By not sinning? Are you really denying yourself by not sinning? Because from the perspective of the, this performance base, you're saying, I'm denying myself a good thing to prove to myself that I'm, I, I'm, I have control, I have strength. In the Christian mindset, or in, in Christ, we're denying ourselves the things that give God no glory. Saying the things of this world, the things of this world have no value for us. So we're not really, truly denying anything that's worth, <laughs> we're denying ourselves the things of this world for the sake of God, for the sake of his glory. The mindset is completely different. If you hurt a foot, your foot, are you denying yourself by taking time from your busy schedule to take care of it? Of course not. If we are part of the body and you, and you serve one another, you deny yourself so that you can serve one another in a way 
that helps the body. Are you denying yourself? No, you're helping, you're building the body. You're building something that you belong to. You're, you're building something that you belong to that gives God glory. The mindset's totally different. It's not self, it's, you're not focusing on your own glory or trying to prove something to others. You're trying to help the purposes and the glory, the purposes for God, for the glory of God. We are not, in Christ, we're not denying ourselves anything that is not building up the glory of God, not building up the church and the purposes for God. The third warning, the third test, is having a presentation mindset has no power to the bondage of sin. This is the pivot point which we'll talk about next in, in the next point in, my, in the next sermon. Having this presentation mindset, this reliance on the things of this world, has no power to the bondage of sin, to the sin in your life, to f- defeating and being sa- defeating the sin in your life and being sanctified. Look at verse twenty-three. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Before coming to faith, why could you not just will yourself to stop sinning? Because you are a sinner. We are sinners. Every inclination of our heart is tainted with evil motives. And even if we try to suppress one urge, it just transfers to another part of our life. As a Christian, as a Christian, is dying really self-sacrifice? We're dying to the the old ways. We're dying to the old ways so that we can come after Christ in life in the new life, in a new way. This is why Jesus said to them, in part, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him change his purposes for this world. Let him change his motivation, his direction, his orientation from self to God, from self-seeking to seeking after the glory of God being used for him and him alone. Even to the point of a cross, even to the point of dying, Jesus being our perfect example. Again, this is different from any other religion. In Christ, we suffer no loss when we serve him and we serve his people. To die is gain. To die is gain not, not, it does not mean that you don't lose anything doesn't mean that you don't lose anything it means that when you follow christ you gain something better you gain christ you gain a life in christ your sacrifice of not sinning is really no sacrifice at all if your motives are pure in line with the lord and giving him glory This pharisaical thinking of, you know, I could be partying, but I'm not because I'm a Christian. I could be fooling around with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but I'm not because I'm a Christian. I could, be, I could be doing whatever, but I'm not because I'm a Christian. That's not a sacrifice. That's not right thinking. 
by saying that, by thinking that, like by, by promoting this, the things that you are denying yourself, you're simply, you're simply trying to prove something to yourself or to others. But you're not relying on God. And you're not actually dealing with the heart issues in your life. Paul's saying such asceticism, such self-sacrificing, that mindset means nothing to God. It has no power to actually change your heart. Who are you worshiping if your Christianity is this performance-based Christianity? Self. Self and more self. God knows your motives and he searches your heart. He's not going to be impressed with your sacrifice. And he won't bless it. What happens to the assurance of a believer who seeks to only minimally change in life and not fight against personal sin, but relying on their own flesh and their own strength? That mindset contributes nothing to the Walking with the to walking with the Lord, and here's the thing. So people like John, my example of John. What happened to John? He started off so well, and he just transitioned to having this performance mindset that sucked his joy away, confused his thinking. Eventually, he started lacking assurance of salvation because he's not walking with God. He doesn't feel his that closeness that we feel with the Lord when we are walking in the Spirit, when we are abiding in Christ. He's changed the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel for these lies, for this performance-based mindset. And it's sucked away his joy. His focus is not on Christ, and he's confused because he doesn't even realize it. Just like the Colossians, which is why Paul writes this letter. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why are you living this way? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, they have indeed the appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You've lost so much, Colossians. You've lost so much ground by trying to rely in your own flesh for your own sanctification, in your own flesh for your holiness. Using trickery, using, using what you can do in this world to please God. Stop. Stop obeying the elemental spirits of this world. Stop obeying the, the way this world works and thinking that that's how God wants to be. That is what God saved us from. Having this performance-oriented faith this type of legalism, trying to please him with your works, will give you no rest because you are constantly working for something that you cannot earn. 
You're given it. A free gift of Christ. It, is, it was all the work that Jesus did on the cross that saved you. That is God's love and his favor in your life. And if you're a believer who allowed, allowed yourself to be deceived, to allow this kind of mindset, and I think all of us, honestly, will struggle from time to time with this. We need to realize these good things that we do. Serving, studying God's word, praying to the Lord, going through whatever good works that you do. They are a means to your holiness, not the end result, not the end product. The end product is your closeness with God. It's giving him glory and abiding in him, walking closely with him. Growing in your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Being transformed for his glory. Because a person who has this mindset, this, this performance mindset, is ineffective. He's ineffective for fighting sin. He's ineffective in growing in the Lord. And he will feel that. He will feel that. And he may even... If it doesn't change, lack, start questioning where he is with the Lord. This is our opportunity. Our opportunity today to think through our own walk. Are we trusting in God, in our growth, in our holiness? Are we trusting in the relationship that we have in Christ rather than the works that we get to do because we are in Christ? The subtle difference but if we get that wrong, if we, if we trust in our work, even to please Christ, then we've messed up that relationship. I love it when my children obey. <laughs> I just love it when my, my children obey me, and we have, close, we have a close relationship. We're closer because of it. But I still love them, and I still, I still come after them no matter what. Is your faith, your Faith in the Lord, focused on your relationship and abiding in Christ rather than what you have to offer. That's the question. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for this this warning in scripture that Paul gives us to not be focused, Lord, on the things that we do to give you glory, but rather the heart that you give us for your glory. Lord, let us, throughout this day, look at what it means to abide in you, and to abide in Christ, and Lord, and to be transformed by it, and to just enjoy the relationship that we have with our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.